this time of year with being, you know, Palm, Palm Sunday and Easter week, you know, most people think that they're, they're ready for that three-hour sermon, so we gotta, we got to get going. we got a lot of, got a lot to do. So. But I promise I'll try to keep it within 50 minutes and give you back all that time. So let's go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for another day. We just thank you for this time that we could be here and, and, and sing praises to you, give you the glory and honor that you're due. And we just pray that we come here today with open hearts and open minds to hear your word, to listen, Lord, and to see how it is that we can apply your truth to our lives outside of here. And again, we just thank you for this time and pray, Lord, that your name would be praised. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm glad you all could be here, um, as well as those of you who are tuning into the live stream or listening to the uh, podcast later. You know, we're here to... Um, on this beautiful day to lift up um, our praise and adoration honor to uh, the Lord Most High. And I can say beautiful, because uh, despite whatever the weather may be or the affairs of the world, we are here to, now to enjoy the Lord. All right? And he has blessed us with another day of life for the ultimate purpose of enjoying him. And so today my hope and prayer is not only do we listen to what... Uh, God has to say. Not only do we look for how we will apply his truth to our lives so that we might be challenged or convicted. And now I can say this, I say this because it's all too easy to come here and to put ourselves on autopilot. You know, we can lift, come here and lift up our hands, our voices, and not really see or hear God. It just becomes another day. You know, we do our duty and we check off our box but fail to really see who our God is and what it is that he is communicating to us. And if you've been a part of this body for some time, you've heard me speak before. In one of those times, I was speaking on the doctrine of uh, soteriology, or the doctrine of salvation. Now, one of the points I'd gotten across during that time was that just because you say that you're saved doesn't mean that you are. Like, you can come here each Sunday, sing loud, raise your hands during worship, give during offering, sit through the sermons, enjoy them, even agree with them and still not be saved. And this is an important point to remember, especially this time of year. And why is that? Because Palm Sunday and Easter are those times that people come to church to fulfill the two-thirds of their church-going responsibility each year. The other time being Christmas. And as if going to church during these times of year is a genuine marker of one's faith. You know, it's how you get to keep the title or keep wearing that badge of Christian. You know, but don't think this kind of thinking is limited only to coming to the big three. No, it's also for those who come once a month, or every other week, or even every Sunday. Attendance does not necessarily equal faithfulness. And it's a common misconception among Christians and those who just attend, and I've mentioned it before from the pulpit when talking about sanctification, that spiritual growth has no direct relationship to time. And quoting from another preacher, he says, Now, we might be under the assumption that if you just wait around long enough, you're bound to grow by virtue of passing time. May I remind you that spiritual growth is not measured by the calendar. All of us know about people who have named the name of Christ for years and years and have grown barely at all. And if there is growth, it is well nigh imperceptible. Hebrews 5, 12 says, 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. And so some time to pass, perhaps a long time, instead of being mature in their faith, they were still infants. They still needed milk. Instead of getting instruction in deeper theological truths, they had to be taught the basics again. Time is not a substitute for effort. Time and knowledge do not automatically make you grow. You can have a lot of knowledge and still be very immature in your faith. You can even have a lot of knowledge and not be saved at all. Now listen, and don't think that just because you go to a church that is engaged in expository preaching that is serious about teaching the Word of God and that you like the messages and that you can understand theological concepts and somewhat explain those concepts to others or nod your head in agreement that you are obedient to the Word of God and are going to grow at all. You could be sitting in church for years and years and years and years, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. If you're not a doer of the Word, if you're not obedient to the Word, you are like the person described in Scripture as dull of hearing, blind, and short-sighted. So how do I know that I'm believing the Word of God and growing? Because I'm doing what it says. I'm being obedient. So, whatever box you are here to check this morning, you have to remember that it's just a box. And along with that realization comes a very important question. Why are you here? Why have you signed on to the live stream? Why are you listening to the recording? Whom are you here to listen or to whom are you here to praise? Why are you here? It's an important question to ask. So, let's turn your Bibles to John chapter 12. Just keep those questions in mind. But turn to John chapter 12 and let's, starting in verse 12, we're going to read this real quick so we can have some context into today's sermon. John chapter 12. Again, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to him, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So next week is the Easter service, which centers on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But for us this week, we'll be looking into the beginning of that week. And this time of year is called Palm Sunday, which historically in the church has been kind of a high occasion. Uh, this part of scripture is detailing the last week of Christ, and specifically today, we are looking at the beginning of that week, or what is called the triumphal entry of Christ. Now, we actually have this event recorded in all four Gospels. So I think it's important that you go back 
to all four Gospels to look at each, how each author records not only the event of the entry, but also the events leading up to the entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And when we look at this point in time of life in Christ, we see particular attention placed on the kingship of Christ, especially by the Jews. But unfortunately, though, as you will see, they completely missed the point. More on that to come. Now, when most people look at this time period, they come right to the passage, whichever gospel account they choose, since it is recorded in all four, but miss the context of the preceding passages. They miss what led up to Christ's triumphal entry and the people involved in the narrative. And that's where we'll be spending much of our time today. We're going to be looking at the different masses of people who were around Christ before and during his entry into Jerusalem. And if you've been around EBF long enough, you should know by now that context is important. In fact, last week, Pastor Greg mentioned that very thing about the importance of context. And when we look at those who were around Christ during this time, we can draw out some very important applications for ourselves. So to understand the present of that situation, you must look back. What do you see when you look back? How far back do you go? Well, I would say first you need to go back to the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah, the king was prophesied. It was proclaimed. You see it from the start in Genesis, after the fall of man, when God declares to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you see the Lord talking with David through Nathan the prophet. In verses 11 through 16, we see the Lord telling him the promises that he would come to pass after his death, that a greater son of David would come and reign over an eternal kingdom. He says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Which Luke later indicates that these words were fulfilled in Jesus. And we see this proclamation again in Isaiah chapter 9, 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Also in Psalm chapter 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Christ was prophesied to be king. He was prophesied to be Messiah. This was not brand new information to them. They knew a king was coming. They knew the Messiah was on the way. 
They had scripture telling them that he was coming. And not only that he was coming, but how to recognize him. They had what they needed. And when, they, when he arrived on the scene, they still did not recognize Jesus for who he really is and what he was there to do. You know, it's easy for us today to sit back and say, wow, how did they not get it? How is it they were so far off? When we look back at the Old Testament, we do the same thing, right? We see the Hebrews and how God delivered them from the Egyptians, provided for them through their wilderness wanderings, defeated their enemies for them during the conquest, etc. But when you read through all of that, you see them constantly turning away from God. They question his faithfulness to them. Why did you bring me out of Egypt only to kill us from hunger and thirst? Our enemies are too big and too numerous. Why did you bring us out of Egypt only to have us die by their hand? And when you're reading in Exodus about the Hebrews' journey from Egypt and see how quickly they forgot God, it can come across almost to us as comical. Mostly because we think we're better than that. They had just seen the plagues that ravaged the Egyptians, but not them. They saw the Red Sea part and walked across on dry ground. They saw the Egyptians swallowed up by the sea when God crushed their enemies for them. They had God leading them by a cloud during the day and by fire at night. And then comes Mount Sinai. God's still in their presence. He even spoke to them directly from the mountain. Moses goes up to the mountain to converse with God, and it only took a matter of days before they had an idol made. And not just to worship, but to lead them on their journey. Days. It may come across as comical, but it's a really sad commentary on how quickly God's people will forget him and turn to something else. So they had scripture prophesying his coming as a king, as the Messiah. And along with that, they had the timeline prophesied. For example, in Daniel chapter 9, the prophet Daniel says that there will be 69 weeks of years, or 69 times 7, from the decree to rebuild the city to the day that the Messiah, the prince, enters it. There will be 69 weeks of years. That means 483 years from the decree to rebuild the city to the time that Messiah enters it. That's what Daniel said. The decree to entrance, 483 years. Now, remember, Jews counted on a 360-day calendar year, right? So there was a man with Scotland Yard by the name of Sir Robert Anderson, and he decided to study this to see whether or not the prophecy was accurate. And so using all the historical information he could, he determined that the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the city came on the 14th of March in 445 B.C. Jesus entered Jerusalem on the 6th of April, 32 A.D., And Sir Robert Anderson said that from the 14th of March, 445 B.C., by Jewish counting to the 6th of April, 3280, is exactly 173,180 days, or to the day, 483 years. To the day. Jesus entered the city at the exact day, at the exact moment. And whereas in prior times he had avoided the conflicts and the confrontation, saying, frequently, mine hour has not yet come, 
This time his hour had come. And it didn't matter what was going on with the Pharisees or the Romans. He would force the issue to be at the cross at that prescribed moment. So they had prophecy that he would be the king, Messiah. They had the timeline. What else did they have? Okay, first, let's go back to Mark. Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to read starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So what we have here, Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem. But before he does, he sends two disciples to a nearby village to get a colt or a young donkey. And now this event is also recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they go and tell the owners what Jesus told them, that he had need of it. And the owners let him have it. They returned it to Jesus, and he rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey that had never been sat on. So why is this part of the account important? Because this was also prophesied. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. They had who he was, King Messiah. They had the timeline. They had that he would do signs and wonders. They even had his mode of transportation. I mean, what more do you need? Yet despite all that God had graciously given them to recognize their coming king, their coming Messiah, they still missed it. They didn't recognize Christ for the king and Messiah he is. What about you, Christian? Don't think that this kind of short-sightedness is limited only to God's people then. We all have the necessary information, all the necessary tools to recognize our king, our Messiah, yet we too can miss him. We too can create for ourselves idols to serve or follow. Why? Because we take our eyes and our focus off of of God and his word and direct it elsewhere. We have all we need to know him to grow in our faith and persevere through trials. In order for us to do these things, we have to be reading the word of God and obeying it. We have to obey it. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. That's James chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. 
You must obey God's word. You can't simply show up and take your seat. You can't simply tune in to the live stream or podcast. Simply hearing the word of God through reading or listening to teaching or preaching will not advance your spiritual growth. Now listen carefully, this is important. I don't mean just listening, I mean listening and agreeing. You know, nodding, I agree with that. That won't grow you. Hebrews 4, 2 says, For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It's simple. Number one, if you are not saved, meaning if you have not truly and fully repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ alone, you will not grow. You cannot grow. Number two, if you are saved and only come here or tune in just to listen, you will not grow. As a believer, you must be obedient to God's word in order to grow. But let's uh, move on before this becomes another sermon on sanctification. So, we see how prophecy played an important role in Christ's triumphal entry. Now, I want to turn the remainder of our time to some of the people who were there during the event. So again, we need to look a little further back in the narrative to see who this first group was. Before Christ's entry into Jerusalem, he had been going along, doing his ministry. He was doing signs and wonders, healing the sick. He had massive crowds following him. Massive. And then comes this event in John 6. Turn, if you would, there. John chapter 6, again, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing, with the, that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? This is great right here. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So you had this large crowd of people, and they were there to see Jesus. And when you look at the other gospel accounts, you can see that they had been with him all day. But who were they? What type of crowd was this? They were pleasure seekers. Pleasure lovers, adrenaline junkie, thrill seeker types. Look at verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they believed in him. No. 
because they saw his miracles on which he did on those who were diseased. He was doing amazing, astonishing, momentous things, and just like thrill-seekers, they had the love of the sensational. How great is Jesus? Despite their motives, Jesus in pity, loving kindness, and mercy met their physical needs, healed them, taught them, and at the end of the day, fed them. They started out with hardly anything, definitely not enough to feed that crowd, but ended up with abundance. They all had their bellies filled. No one went away hungry. He created food. I mean, that's an astonishing thing. So much so that we read in verse 15 that they tried to make him a king. That's what he wanted, right? Nope. You see, it was for all the wrong reasons. Instead of falling down on their knees to worship him as Messiah, instead of recognizing their rightful position as ungodly sinners who should be crying out for mercy to the Blessed One, worthy of their heart's adoration or reverence, they only wanted to use him. They had found their magic genie. They could get a hold of him and rub that magic lamp and have him zap or blink or wiggle his nose, whatever genies do, and have them just zap whatever they want into existence. Instead of seeing Jesus for who he is, their king, their Messiah, they saw a welfare state. Free food. No more sickness. This is great. Socialized medicine. Nobody will ever have COVID again. I'm sure they had that then, right? I mean, you get the point. They thought they had someone who would give them what they wanted whenever they wanted for free. We have people like that today. Those who love the sensational. They flock to their rivals in meetings where people spend time on the miraculous gifts like healings, tongues, prophecy. Their focus is to get what they need or want for their physical or emotional desires while failing to see their true need of salvation that can only come from the one who saves, Jesus Christ. Now, I like what John MacArthur had to say concerning this group of people. He says, there's no repentance here. There's no worship here. There's no submission here. This is purely a mercenary mob who are in it for personal and selfish gain. There are plenty of people like that today. They see Jesus as a prophet. They see Jesus as a good teacher. And they say, well, take what you can get. Some of his teachings are wonderful. He's made contribution to mankind. And they never see their need to fall before him as the incarnate God. They never see their need to bow before him in repentance, seeking forgiveness. They never see him as a refuge from the wrath to come. They are misguided. They don't have the right view. They are like the mercenary mob, and Jesus is there for whatever good he may contribute. And you know that's wrong. You don't come to Jesus for what you can get. You come to Jesus because of who he is. I don't come to Jesus because of what he gives me. I come to Jesus because of what he deserves from me. Now listen, if he only saved me and never gave me anything, that would be more than I ever deserved. They missed the point. They were misguided. 
How often does that happen today? As a Christian, when you fail to be in God's word, you miss the lessons that God has so graciously given to show us that he does not work on our terms, but on his. We miss the teaching on having the right motivation. Now, for example, depending on where you are with your Bible reading, assuming you're reading the Bible, you might have read 1 Samuel 4. And if you have not gotten there yet, just letting you know, spoiler alert. In 1 Samuel 4, you see the Israelites and the Philistines in battle. It's not going well for Israel. They're losing. So they come up with a brilliant, brilliant idea. Hey, let's bring up the Ark of the Covenant. If it's here, we surely will win this battle. You see, it was their good luck charm. We, we will bring our God to this battle. And when we do, <laughs> you Philistines are toast. Toast! So they brought up the ark. And the people of Israel go crazy. They're shouting. They're excited. And the Philistines, they, man, they start panicking. And they start saying, man, we are so dead. We are going to lose. They have their God now. And you know what happened next? God reversed the whole situation. He gave power to the Philistines, and they wiped out the Israelites. And they stole the ark. God reminded the Israelites then and us now that God does not work on our terms. Christians fall prey to this kind of thinking too, don't we? We tend to snuggle up to Jesus when we want something out of him. Now, it reminds me of when my children were younger. Be at home doing different things. One of them would come up to me, snuggle up close, give me those cute little puppy dog eyes. Say, Dad, I love you. Now, of course, you're probably thinking, man, that's precious. That's precious. That's just great. Sure sounds that way, doesn't it? You know, I'd look back at them and smile and say, what do you want? I, as the wise, discerning father, was not going to be fooled. No, no. Mm -mm. Now, sometimes they would continue with the love talk and then get to the, well, I was wondering if I could have, you know, fill in the blank, or I was wondering if we could go wherever. Now, was that always the case? No, but you get my point. What they were saying was great, but it was with the wrong motivation. It's the same for the Christians who snuggle up to Jesus. We start acting better, attending church more. We start to see ourselves as not too bad. And we look at Christ as the one from whom we get what we want. Especially when we want peace in times of trouble or health in times of sickness. I'm sure hits home for a lot of people these days. But when he comes to us with tough or absolute demands for sacrifice, or reminds us that growing in our faith takes continuous, strenuous effort, hard work, and says there are crosses to bear, we're not so interested, are we? Maybe that's because you're coming to Jesus the same way these pleasure-seeking thrill-seekers did. You're only coming... For what you could get rather than what he deserves. 
So, after their bellies were filled by Christ performing this miracle, the text says that they were going to try to take him by force to make him king. But it was for the wrong reason. Jesus rejected it. He leaves them, but just like a crowd that craves the sensational, they'd figured out where he was going and followed him there. They needed to keep that gravy train going. So, as Jesus and the disciples are moving closer to Jerusalem, Jesus is continuing to teach, perform miracles, no doubt with this crowd following close behind. And the big miracle that he does before getting there is raising Lazarus from the dead. And this was such a big deal. I mean, this wasn't just a sickness to heal. And this was even bigger than when he raised the widow's son from the dead in Luke 7, or Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. And it was bigger in that those two resurrections occurred immediately after death. And Lazarus was raised after being in the grave four days, with the process of decomposition already having started. It was just another clear example of Jesus' deity. It authenticated his claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, can, can you imagine how the thrill-seeker crowd would have reacted to that? But at this event were also Jews from Jerusalem who had come down to comfort Mary, Martha, on account of Lazarus' death. They went to the tomb with Mary, Martha and Jesus, and were witnesses to what Jesus had done. We read that they went to Jerusalem and started spreading the word of what had just taken place. I mean, this was a big deal. They had to tell people what they just saw. And we have to, we have to mention this part of the narrative because it's critical to the setup of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. I mean, so after this massive demonstration of Jesus' power, of his deity, he departs from them for a little while. But there's no doubt that the word of this continued to spread. I mean, can you imagine the buzz that had been in the air at the time? Can you just imagine them whipping up their phones, uploading that video, and sending all those texts and tweets and chats? I mean, well, obviously not those things, but there would have been such an excitement in the air. I mean, his name, this miracle on everyone's lips... And we read in John 12 that six days before the Passover, Jesus came back to Bethany, the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. <clears throat> they prepared a dinner for him. People had heard Jesus was there, and like before, crowds started to form. Verse 9 tells us that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I mean, they had to see this Jesus. So we have our second crowd of people now. No doubt the sensationalist crowd was there as well. I mean, they've been following around for quite some time. No reason to stop now. But we now have this second crowd. Those who had come from Jerusalem and basically lined the path all the way up to Jerusalem. John 12. John 12, starting in verse 12 what we started reading before. And the next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And again, as we read before, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb raised and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So Jesus is leaving Bethany, headed to Jerusalem. He's riding on the young donkey, which we have already seen the importance of that as fulfillment of prophecy. And as he is riding along, this crowd is putting their cloaks on the road and cutting down palm branches and laying them on the road as well. And they're yelling. They're crying out. And John, we see them crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And in Matthew 21, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And in Mark 11, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And in Luke chapter 19, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's excitement in the air. They're shouting the Hosannas. And blessed be the King of Israel. And as we saw in Matthew, they included Son of David. And upon reading all this, you might conclude, finally... They acknowledge Jesus as king. They finally get it. They finally see him as a king. And they did. But again, for the wrong reasons. They wanted a political king. They wanted someone who would overthrow the Roman government. They were tired of being oppressed. They had been under the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks. They were tired of it. They had had enough. And now comes this Jesus. They knew what he had just done. They knew about him bringing Lazarus back from the dead. I mean, no one has ever done that like Jesus had done. There's no calm man or charlatan that had pulled that off. No, he's the real deal. He has the power. So they cried out, Hosanna, which literally means save now. It was a political cry. Save us now. Deliver us now. Do it now. Just do it. It was their cry, their prayer for deliverance, political deliverance. But unlike the thrill seekers, they weren't trying to force Jesus to be a king. They were acknowledging it. They recognized him from being from the line of David, a political line, a kingly line. They were saying, you are our king. We acknowledge you as king. Save us now. And these words they cried out were from Psalm 118. And this is part of a group of psalms called the Hallel, which compromise the Psalms 113 through 118. They knew them well. 
They were taught to them from a young age. They recited them year after year at the Passover, and it was a reminder of God's deliverance out of Egypt. They were sung at great acts of God or during times of praise. They knew them. They knew the words, the content, and something of their meaning. But even with knowledge of Scripture, they got it wrong. How true is that for us today as well? Even today, people think that because they can memorize, quote, or paraphrase Scripture, that they are mature in their faith, and that they know who Jesus is, and that they are progressing in holiness. In fact, I made that point earlier, that this is a misguided view. And I'll repeat it, just because it's an important point to take away. Time is not a substitute for effort. Time and knowledge do not automatically make you grow. You can have a lot of knowledge and still be very immature in your faith. You can even have a lot of knowledge and not be saved at all. So getting back to the Jews here, though, we see that their cries here are for political reasons. They quote scripture, specifically Psalm 118, and cry out, save us now. Now, interesting, when I was reading through this and studying up, I had read that Psalm 118, traditionally throughout Jewish history, has been called the conqueror's psalm. So again, they're hailing a conquering hero, a conquering king. But because they are so misguided, they failed to see that Jesus had come not to be the conquering king, but to be the lamb king who takes away the sins of his people. They were so misguided, this was not even the first time they had sung this psalm to a person. They said the same psalm a hundred years before to Simon Maccabeus when he defeated the Syrians. They only saw a political leader. They only wanted a political leader. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their hosannas were hollow. The people may have been overjoyed and excited when he arrived, but not Jesus. In fact, we, in Luke, we see a different reaction from Jesus. Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. And when he drew near the city and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. When Jesus drew near, he wept. Why? Because he knew their real motivation. He knew the fickleness of their attitude. I mean, this wasn't going to last. All this praise was short-lived. This recognition that he was their king was very temporary. So he wept. And then proceeded to tell them that because of their inability to recognize him, because they did not accept him, that they were going to be destroyed. Which happened about 40 years later when Titus surrounded and sieged the city, 
killed over a million Jews and leveled Jerusalem. But for that moment in time, they thought they were going to be living the high life. They were so focused on crying out to their conquering hero to save them now that they totally missed the point of the way Jesus entered the city. Conquerors rode in on white horses or gold chariots. Jesus rode in on a baby donkey. Jesus was presenting a message there, but nobody seemed to get it. He tried to show them that his kingdom was not political. In those days, the donkey was a symbol of peace. He rode in as a prince of peace. They didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. So Jesus wept. Again, quoting from uh, MacArthur, it should have been evident to everybody that his kingdom was not of this world. But they were so hysterical that they never got the point of the donkey. You know, I hate to say it, but so many people throughout history have been just as mistaken as the mistaken multitude. And just like they thought Jesus was nothing more than a social reformer, there are people today who think the same thing. They look at Jesus as sort of a patriot, a reactionary, a revolutionary, somebody who has got a social message to proclaim. And they forget that Jesus didn't come to remove poverty from the world. He even said, the poor you'll always have with you. Jesus didn't come to set all the economic injustices of human society right. He didn't come to invent a new kind of human government. Jesus came to touch the souls of men and to change society from the inside, not the outside. And if you're looking at Jesus, at a, if you're looking at a Jesus that you think is a social problem solver, it's going to be hard to convince yourself of that. Because Christians have been in the world for 2,000 years, and we really haven't done a great job on changing the world from the outside. So we had a crowd that tried to make him a king. And we had a crowd that hailed him as king. But when they figured out, though, that he was not the king they wanted, they were more than ready to kill him for claiming to be a king. And it didn't take long for the change to take place. And I'll leave the rest of that narrative for next week's Easter service. But we can learn a lot from these crowds. And one thing we can see quite clearly is how quickly God's people can and will forget him when their focus is on their desires instead of on God's desires. We saw it in the Old Testament with the Hebrews. God delivered them from the Egyptians. He provided protection from their enemies. He was in their midst day and night, but they still turned away to a created image. The Jews here had scripture. They had the prophecies that told them the time, the place, and even the mode of transportation so that they would recognize their Messiah, their king. Their focus was on the sensational works, the free meals, the socialized medicine, not on Jesus. Their focus was on their desire for social reform or political reform, not on the fact that Jesus rode in as a prince of peace so that he could be the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Even today, with the complete canon of Scripture, we can miss the point. 
We have everything they had and more, yet people still miss the point of Jesus' arrival in the world and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And just like the Jews then, we have all we need to recognize Jesus for who he really is. The Lamb of God who was slain for our sins and who rose again, and what our response should be to that knowledge. But somehow, people still miss the point. I've been going through a history class with my kids, and the first lesson was about the Mesoamericans. And during the lesson, the teacher had said something interesting about this group of people concerning their downfall of civilizations. Now, granted, there were several things that, that uh, contributed to their downfall. But one thing he said stuck out as I listened. He said they did not apply what they knew to be true to what they knew to be right. They didn't apply what they knew to be true to what they knew to be right. The same can be said of the Hebrews of the Old Testament. It can be said of the Jews during Jesus' time, and it can be certainly said of us today. If we as Christians don't apply what we know to be true, God's word, to what we know to be right, complete obedience to God's word, then we are not going to grow at all. It will not matter how many times you walk through the doors here. It will not matter if you like and agree with the sermons. It will not matter if you memorize verses. If you're not obedient to the word of God, you will not grow at all. You will not progress in your sanctification. Growth takes effort. It's hard work. Jesus never promised that once we are saved, that he would take away any of our worldly suffering. He never promised to make us rich here on earth, or to give us social reform, or heal us from all sickness. No. In fact, he told us that the world would hate us because it hates him. Being a follower of Christ brings on us the wrath of the world, not its blessing. What Christ promised and secured for us is forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him. But just like people then, people today toss him aside because he is not the king they want. He is not the God they imagine. So they throw Jesus aside for a Jesus they created. One that fits their image, their desires, That's what these crowds did. Don't follow their example. We have what we need to recognize our King, our Messiah. God has graciously given us, through His Word, all that we need, not only to recognize the true King, but to recognize and to understand that He did not come as the conquering King, but as the Lamb King. The Lamb King who willingly died for the sins of His people. Now listen, if you don't understand that Christ had to die for your sins, then you don't understand anything about Christ. He had to die. Why? Because Scripture is clear that there is no one, that no one is righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Christ bore your death on the cross to pay for your sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Now listen, this week, don't get carried away with the hosannas and the hallelujahs that can and will come about because of the ritual 
of Easter. There will be a lot of lip service. It's all very fickle. It's very passing. Jesus didn't even believe them, so don't you. When the world starts throwing its tokens at Jesus this week, don't take it for more than it is. Superficial. Unless they want to talk about his death for sin. Tell you this, if you believe everything there is to believe about Christ, but don't believe he died for your sin, that you need to repent, turn from your sin, ask for forgiveness from your sin, put your faith in Christ alone and receive that gift of salvation, all the rest is meaningless. Meaningless. He had to die. And that's the meaning that he gave to Palm Sunday. And he immediately takes us from this day to the day of his death on the cross. And one writer summed it up this way. They pluck their palm branches and hail him as king early on Sunday. They spread out their garments. Hosannas they sing early on Sunday. But where is the noise of their hurrying feet? The crown they offer, the scepter, the seat. The king wanders hungry for God in the street early on Monday. So I'll end today by asking the same questions that I started out with. Why are you here? Whether you're here physically, watching the live stream, or listening afterwards, why are you here? Whom have you come here to worship? Is it a Jesus of your own design? Are you here seeking some sort of thrill, something sensational, miraculous? Are you here because you seek social or political reform? You want God to take away the burden of living under some kind of oppressive government? Or are you here just to fulfill your quota of church attendance? Why are you here? Why are you listening? Hopefully, two things have been realized today. One, that if you are a Christian, one that has truly repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are here to give him the praise, honor, and glory that he is due. And why? Because like it says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once you walked, once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And two, if you are here and you're not a follower of Christ, if you're listening and you're not a follower of Christ, that you have realized, if you have failed to recognize that the true Messiah and King has come, and if you have not been obedient to the command to repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior, you are what is described later in the same passage 
as a person without hope because you are without God. But now you who are far off can be brought near by the blood of Christ by acknowledging and repenting of your sins and putting your faith and trust in Christ alone. Let us all recognize that the true king, the lamb king, has come, and that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for another reminder of how great you are and of how much praise and honor and glory that you are due. Thank you for the reminders of your teachings and your word, Lord for how we should respond to your teaching, to your word, to your commands. Thank you, Lord, that you wrote in as a prince of peace, as the Lamb King who was willing to die for our sins and then who rose again. Lord, just let us leave this place today with boldness and excitement for who you are and what you have done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.